Sometimes it takes a massive disruption in life for you to finally find the courage to sever ties to the life that feels too small and say yes to the invitation to a deeper and more satisfying way of living that you've been ignoring. Don't miss the opportunity. These are the words of Caleb Campbell. Today's guest on the Free Your Energy podcast is like a brother to me at this point. I love the conversation that we had. His ability to open up, express, and to be vulnerable uh, and to be deeply honest is such a beautiful invitation for all of us to recognize the power that we have access to by choosing to consciously tap into it. Caleb was a former professional athlete. Uh, He was an NFL player, and he also attended uh, the Military Academy, one of the most prestigious schools up in New York. The stories that he has to tell are stories that are very, very unique, but so relatable on every level. You know, he has such a loving heart and warm space for his parents and his upbringing, but he also on the same, at the same stroke can recognize uh, the pain that his parents created in his life. And it's so beautiful to hear someone be able to tell where they were as a kid, the transformations they went through in their teenage years and early 20s, and now where they are as a, as a 30-year-old in their 30s. Oftentimes when we go through things, we go through pain, we go through adversity, sometimes people can say things to you like, well, if you're going through hell, keep going. Or, you know, they say these, they say these things to you that allude to, well, you're going through pain, get something from it, get something out of it, get, get a lesson from it. Well, how about I, I don't want to go through the pain. How about that? You know, how about that? I, I don't really want to go through it. So what I see from this conversation with Caleb is I see this as an invitation through those of us who may be going through some type of limiting beliefs or maybe some type of shame that we're still holding on to or some type of resentment that we're still holding on to that's causing us pain. And I see this conversation as an invitation to let go. Why do I have to keep going through this? I don't, I don't have to. Caleb, Caleb invites me to let go. Caleb invites me to be my highest self. I don't have to change who I am to to appease mom, to appease dad, to appease society. I can be exactly who I am. Like who I am is enough. Who I am is enough. Who you are right now is enough. What story are you reinforcing? I hope you start telling yourself 
and you begin to reinforce the story that who you are right now is enough. There's big love inside of you. There's a big energy inside of you. What you are right now is enough. If you're in the loop of chasing success because you want to be validated, you want to show that you're smart, that you're good looking, that you're lovable, that you're likable. I just hope you can begin to accept that you don't have to chase success for those reasons. Like you are enough right now. I hope that whatever you pursue in your relationships, career, with your hobbies, with your own experience, I hope that your pursuit is born out of genuine desire, out of curiosity. And I, I hope it's not out of the longing of, if I do this, these people will like me. If I do this, these people will accept me. If I do, no. No, no more. Enough is enough. You are enough as you are. Let's dive into my chat with Mr. Caleb Campbell. Expanding your life consciously. I hope this helps you to free your free energy. Free energy. energy. Take me to the days of you being a 13, 14, 15 year old. Man, you want to go there right now at the beginning of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, Let's go. man. Take me to the days of being 13, 14, and 15. It's funny because so much of the therapy has been going back to those moments because I feel like in my life, I had blocked out so much of that part of my life. Um, I was an awkward kid, grew up in the Bible Belt of Texas, very evangelical-centric home and lifestyle. Um, I would say about those times, I was obviously maturing um, emotionally and just my, my sexuality, uh, maturing into a man, and it was awkward, and there was really no space inside of my home or inside of the church that I was attending at that time to help me process all of this that I was feeling in my life. And so I would say around that time, I started to really suppress my feelings, suppress my emotions um, in a real way. I was trying to please my mom. I think more than anything, she was the primary caretaker of me. Uh, my father was around, but I had a deep relationship with my mom. I often say that I wasn't afraid of uh, disappointing God. I was afraid of disappointing my mom. <laughs> um, and so at this age, I, in a lot of ways, um, knew that there was a plan for my life. And I was very, I was very driven uh, to fulfill that plan. Uh, that I felt was real in my heart, but no idea how that was going to be possible. So when you say you had to, you had this longing and desire to please your mom. Yeah. Tell me a little more about that. Like, where where was that born? Like, were you conscious of it at that time? Or were you not really aware of it? And you were kind of, you know, just acting on that energy? I think my mom and I relationship, the best way you can sum it up is codependent. Um, mm. I was six when 
I scored a game-winning touchdown in flag football. Bro, I crushed the flag football leagues. <laughs> and I was, I was six when I scored a touchdown. And I remember going to the sideline. And my mom was there waiting for me. And she had this smile on her face. And she was just so ecstatic. And I remember her grabbing my sweaty, red little face and saying to me, Caleb, you scored the game-winning touchdown. I love you so much. And it was innocent. It was so innocent. My mom showed up the best she can. I believe that. But in this moment, I realized that my love from my mother, also love in life, was kind of directly dependent or correlated to my ability to perform. And so at this young age, I found love and acceptance through performance. And that became the, the blood in my veins, the oxygen in my lungs. And I think it was just reinforced time and time again. Uh, every time, you know, I did score a game winning touchdown or I won the basketball game or whatever it was. And I think my mom at an early age, I, looking back, I didn't know at the time, but she was, she was clearly living vicariously through me. Um, the mistakes that she had made in her past. And I, and I love my mom dearly. The mistakes that she had made in her past, uh, were being projected onto me. And so it just created a very, you can't make the same mistakes that I did and I'm going to do everything in my damn power to make sure that's not going to happen. And so it was a very controlling, um, micromanaging type of relationship, but at the same time it was full of support and love. And so, um, yeah, I think as you do more therapy and you get more awareness, you're like, Oh, that's kind of abusively or uh, emotionally abusive. <laughs> right. I think me and you are very similar in that we we recognize the efforts mm. and the love that was present in our parents, but we also both recognize where they could have called an audible <laughs> and done things a little differently, you know? Absolutely. So it's funny, like I'm I'm working on my next book and it's like, I'm painting pictures where my dad is this almost abusive villain, but he was. Mm-hmm. But then there's also pictures I'm painting where he was the greatest sensei, the greatest teacher, the the guru. And it's like, he was also that too. Yeah. So I think it's beautiful that you've come into a duality with your mom where you can completely accept that she had great intentions and meant well, but yeah. she just didn't execute it in the, the safest way. So I'm curious, what is present day relationship like with, with mom and dad? Are they both alive? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, my mom and my father, I grew up and because sports were such a big part of my life from an early age, it was kind of my mom. I have two siblings. My younger brother, we're all three years apart. He's also very, um, you know, he's a three-time world record holder, uh, Paralympian. Um, you know, won an ESPY award, so on and so forth. And then my older brother was a bull rider, <laughs> you know, so we were all kind of a sports centric family, but my older brother and my father were both kind of cowboys growing up, growing up in the Texas panhandle out on a farm. And so they did their thing. And then my mom and my younger brother and I, we did our thing. Um, so from an early age, I didn't have, I would say that a really emotionally close relationship with my father. I think it was because not only was I spending a lot of time with him, um, but also because I think my father was also un- emotionally unavailable in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And he did what he knew how to do to the best of his ability. And that was to provide for his family. And so he would work himself to the bone to make sure that that happened. Um, I didn't have an actually close relationship with my father until back in, I think it was like 2009. He, I got a phone call saying that he had a, a heart attack and they were going to have to do immediate surgery and 
ended up being a quadruple bypass and he's great now, but I remember flying home and like spending all this time in the hospital room with him. And I think that shifted something in my heart towards my father um, in a lot of ways. And so we have been kind of uh, growing closer over the years. Um, And then when it comes to my mom, I've had to set hard boundaries in Mm -hmm. my life, really, really hard boundaries. And I think that's part of the hard, one of the hard parts of the healing journey, when you're going on this journey of like discovering the deeper questions about life and about your life and why you're here and so on and so forth. It's like, just because they're your family, they doesn't mean they have access into the deeper parts of your heart. And I've had to learn that the hard way. And, um, while I love my mom dearly, there are boundaries there emotionally and physically. Um, and I just continue to support her from afar. Don't judge. Don't, Give us, give us an example. Yeah. I know a lot of adults struggle with yeah. boundaries with dad, boundaries with mom, boundaries with sister, brother, you know, with the family uh, that we grew up with. Give us some examples of the boundaries that you currently have in place and how you went about uh, creating them. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think when it comes to my mom, the boundaries I have in place um, or my mom and father, let me say it like this. I don't give them access to the parts of my heart that are healing. So if I'm working through something in life, say I'm dealing with maybe the shame around my sexuality coming from an evangelical church and growing up in the purity movement, and that's really messy. And if I'm in the middle of that healing journey and it's it's raw, it's vulnerable, when my mom asks me how I am doing, tell me what's going on in your life, I don't share those parts of my life, right? Because I don't think in the past has shown me that she doesn't know how to hold that space for me when I am coming undone or when I'm working through something very raw and vulnerable. And it's the same thing with my father. So I think one of the most evident examples of that is just having boundaries around conversations. You know, I, for me, my healing journey has been so sacred. And so people, not everyone has the access to enter into that sacred room with me. And so that's just one way that I would say I create and implement boundaries in my mom's life in my father's life as well. Okay. So let's go back to where where in texas did you grow up uh the texas panhandle so very very top of texas man a small farm town uh outside of perryton texas how do you spell that p-e-r-r-y-t-o-n i'm a i'm a very curious person so i think seeing geography also helps you know create like a visual image of wow (laughs) <laughs> so your nearest city was Amarillo. Amarillo, two hours away. So as you can imagine, there was a cycle in this little t- farm town, oil town. You know, you go to high school, you maybe go to college or you go to a local college and you find yourself back in that town, either working for oil, a chemical company, farming, something like that. And my mom was pretty adamant that that would not be the case for my brothers and I. She wanted you guys to get out. Yeah, she wanted to get us to get out. And so she just, she did everything possible to the best of her ability. Do you think she felt trapped there herself? Absolutely. Yeah, Hmm. absolutely. I think she, at this time, and this was evident later on in life, and I don't want to tell my mom's story um, just because I want to respect her in a lot of ways, but it was evident that my mom, when she decided to divorce her father, she was look, my father, she was looking for a way to 
let go and, and unlock the cage that she had felt in her life. And that would become evident when she would have a meltdown in the words that come out of her mouth. I'm like, oh, that's, that's the issue here. Um, and I don't think my mom knew it at the time, but maybe she didn't have, and I've talked to her about this, maybe she didn't have the courage to say yes to her own heart and walk away in a more emotionally uh, stable way. So she decided to live vicariously through me and I was her way out. Mm. So take me through the mindset and the experience of you're living in this small town, you're feeling compressed with church, your junior, senior year, you're killing it on the football field. Mm. One of the, the top guys there. Uh, you, you played other sports as well? Yeah, I almost quit football to pursue college basketball. So you're nice at basketball. You can hoop. You can. You, what did you have any other sports? I ran track, but it was primarily of course. Basketball. What were your events in track? Uh, sprint, relay, triple jump. Um, sometimes the quarter when I was filling up to it, and the, the quarter is brutal. Bro, it's the worst. I mean, it's brutal. <laughs> so you do like four by one, four by two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they put you in all the explosive stuff. That makes sense. So what is that like? You're three three sport athlete. Mm-hmm. You're probably getting attention that you probably don't understand from mm-hmm. from principals, girls, peers. Walk you us through think, the mindset. You would think I was 16 when I wrote my first suicide note. Because I showed up every single day and performed my ass off in that field and on that court. And my teammates loved me then. But there wasn't a day that went by because of my morals and my values. And at that time, a very, very, very dedicated, a dedicated commitment to my relationship with God, to the best of my ability, how I saw God at that time period in my life. And because I wasn't willing to do the things that everybody else was doing, and because of the added dimension of a very overpowering mother who was overparenting and deciding to fight my own fight my battles for me very vocally and visibly um it just it wreaked hell for me off of the court or off of the field and so while i was all state texas in the texas high school hall of fame um you know while i was succeeding so much in the in the professional or in the in the sports world in high school I was the most lonely. I felt like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole every single day. I'm a four on the Enneagram. So even at this time, there's just a deep, deep sense of purpose, looking for purpose and longing for significance and doing anything I can to find connection. And it wasn't happening. And so very lonely, very isolated, really confused, very suppressed, and very uh, much dealing with suicidal ideation. Introvert, extrovert, ninety nine point nine seven percent introverted. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, on the field, were you captain? Did you did you have to call out plays and you know make adjustments? How was that role for you, being an introvert? Yeah, it was fine. It was something that I could turn on. Um, I was passionate about sports, and so I never really saw my personality as a deterrent uh, in, in sports. Um, 
it was more so outside of the game. And I think that's what created a lot of confusion for me is like, this is who I am on the field and this is where I'm most accepted. How can I shape this personality into a mold that follows me everywhere? But then that was just, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, that was just one continuous act of self-betrayal after another, right? Which was just really disconnecting me from my body and my life, which would be the, 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 the downfall, you know, 10 years later. You said that was your first suicide note. Do you still have that note? What did you do with it? How many other suicide notes have you written? I wrote one other one uh, right before I was getting ready to leave the NFL when my life was in absolute chaos. Um, That first note and that second note I've actually burned um, at a ceremony. Um, I'm really adamant now in my life as I look back at my whole healing journey on how do I create space in my heart and my life to grieve, to really grieve the unmet expectations of my life and the unfulfilled dreams of my life. And part of my grieving ceremony was honoring the little boy who wrote that note and the young man who (laughs) the little boy was very much still alive in that young man, um, honoring him uh, and just working through this process and part of that grief process was actually just burning that note, um, as Mm -hmm. kind of a, uh, I don't know, just kind of an honor that that young boy has grown up now. Mm. Wow. Do you think you'll, this is a, a question that you might not be able to answer. Do you think you'll ever write another one? You're right. I don't know if I can answer that, but my heart wants to say no. I have been afforded <laughs> how this happened. I don't know, but I found my soulmate and my wife, Kara, is the most beautiful woman in the world, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. And her willingness to be so brave and so courageous and hold space for me in the times where I need to open up and talk about what's really going on in my life. Um, and I think that is the, the, the solution to a lot of, uh, to the reason why I did write those notes in the first place. I was so scared of that people saw the truth about what was really going on in my life. If people knew what was happening behind closed doors, if people really knew the mistakes that I made, like there's no way they would accept me. And so I hid it and I hid damn well behind success and achievement. Um, but now there is no more hiding. I've invited a mirror back into my life and she mirrors back to me things that sometimes I don't want to see, but she holds such, such, such deep and safe space for me to look at those things head on. It's easy to hide in this society because this society rewards success. So if you become successful in other people's eyes, their perception of you, they validate you. They say things like, you're so smart, you're so rich, you're so athletic, you're so good looking, whatever the successful pillar is that that person is rewarding you for. The problem with success, especially when it's uncontained, so like talking about you being a teenager, you're, you're uncontained. That's not a safe container for your experience because... You had so much happening that you couldn't, you weren't even able to process it in a healthy way. So when we have these like uncontained experiences where we're not really allowed to fully express, and then there's a mask of, oh, well, you're successful or, oh, you're smart. Then what we tend to do is we, we lean on that 
as a coping mechanism because we're like, oh, well, that person likes me. I just need to keep doing that thing, right? And then you, it's interesting you say you met, you met your wife who, who became your mirror. So she, know, she was a person that wasn't looking at you like, oh, well, you're the successful athlete or you're... She says, no, I want to see you. Mm. I want to see your soul. Mm-hmm. Were you able to recognize that difference in, in her? Because I know as a former athlete myself that especially when you're younger, there's female attention that comes. But a lot of that female attention isn't coming because of Caleb or because mm-hmm. of Sylvester. It's coming because, oh, you're on the team. Yeah. You're, you know, so... I know for me in my experience, when I was in my 20s and playing, when I was playing football, I didn't even take women seriously because my mindset was, you don't really like me. Mm. You just know that I'm on the team and you just want to be around, which wasn't the best mindset, but that was my mindset. So did you have any of that? How were you able to recognize the power that your wife has? Did you, did you see it day one? Talk me through how you, how you came to see her and recognize her strength. Yeah, I think meeting my wife was such a spiritual experience. Um, I know that the sports or that side of my life did nothing for my wife because honestly, today, Sylvester, like, she doesn't know what a first down is. (laughs) She knows nothing about the game of football um, and she's never dated an athlete before. Um, And we met in such a, a special, experience there was 12 authors or aspiring authors from around the country that got invited invite only to this all paid expenses paid for trip out into kentucky that would help us write our first book so publishers coaches Mm. all these people would come in and my my wife now kara and i both were invited at this time we have never met each other and that moment as you can imagine or that weekend as you can imagine was full of like let's just drop deep Shed the pretenses, no facades, no masks. Who are you? Why are you here? Open up your heart for the world to see. And I think I have done so much work. Uh, and I think this is why my relationship with my wife came at the exact time he was supposed to. I had done so much work to really build resilience around the shame that was preventing me from fully showing myself from fully allowing me to show up as Caleb Campbell. This is who I am because for the longest time, my whole experience, much like you said, where either people taking advantage of you, not really wanting to know you, but what can they get from you? So or so forth. Or when I did show up and show my full self, I was rejected, right? Or I was judged, labeled, whatever it might be. And so, so much of the journey has been really connecting with who I truly am and learning how to, in a very safe, systematic way, almost take off the mask. And when Kara met me, she got, she met my heart because in the season of life that I was in, like sports that like, I didn't even talk about it. It wasn't a priority of mine. It wasn't even in my conversation language. And so she saw into my heart and she also had created a space in her own heart from her own individual journey up until this point to hold my story. And we just had a moment of connection there. And I honestly, I don't think there had been any other time in my life where I instantaneously felt um, this sense of safety as well as being fully seen and known in the matter of seconds of meeting my wife. There's something that you had to let go of Mm -hmm. in order to be with her. What is that thing that you let go of? This, 
this very ingrained belief system that says I'm bad. My entire life has been trying to achieve levels of success so that I can convince myself and the world around me that I'm good, that I'm worthy, or that I'm enough, right? But I still feel it in my bones sometimes that I'm still working around this deep shame that comes from childhood experiences. And I honestly think a lot of it comes from purity culture and my experience with the church, but there's this feeling. What is, what is purity culture? Purity culture was this movement that started in the nineties in the evangelical culture that basically was all about uh, abstaining from sex before marriage. And so there was these, you know, a lot of, a lot of conversations going around, like in youth groups of like, say a pastor would take a rose and pass around the rose, right. And everybody would touch it and smell it. And then the pastor would get up there and be like, so who would want this rose after it's been touched by everybody and smelled by everybody and used by everybody? Like, so it's like this whole idea of saving yourself before marriage. And so because there was no space in my church and nobody talked about sex, sex was for God or for marriage only in the act of a covenant marriage. And there was just no space to talk about sex. And so anytime I became 13, 14, 15, like we're talking about, and suddenly I'm getting aroused or turned on or having sexual thoughts or desires, and there was no space to help me process that, I suppressed my sexuality. I hid that because that to me was the doorway to sin, which would prevent me from actually stepping into God's plan for my life. Right. And so I carry so much shame because I remember when I was probably five. Yeah. We're just at five. And I put my hands down my pants, just a little boy, you know, playing with myself. And I have an adult at that time, slap the shit out of my hand and say, good boys don't touch themselves there. And that Mm. created such a deep moment of shame in my life that I've had to revisit time and time again, uh, in therapy sessions. And I think it's just created to go back to what I said, like there's something intrinsically wrong with me. There's something broken in me. And so much of my journey had been walking away from the NFL and creating the space to be still with that and learn how to give that little boy the love that it needs. And I had to let go of that before I could invite in to a degree. I had to let go of that before I could invite in to create the space to allow someone to fully see me and to love me for who I really am. Shame is the biggest block that we're dealing with in this culture. We have a shame-based culture. Yeah, we do. Get a six-pack, they're going to shame you because you're a health nut. You're obese, they're going to shame you because you're fat. You're too tall. Oh, you didn't play basketball? You wasted your height. (laughs) Come on. You know, it's like, no matter how you... Oh, you're wearing a wig? Oh, that's fake. We're going to shame you. You're using your natural hair? Oh, that doesn't look that good. You know, it's like, no matter... What you do, you'll get shamed. Today, I'm wearing denim. I'm wearing denim on denim. (laughs) Someone's going to see my outfit and they're going to be like, well, that blue doesn't match that blue. That's stupid, (laughs) you know? But then another person's going to love it. You know, that's the beauty of it. And shame is is the biggest block, especially shame around sexuality because then we repress so much of our human nature. We repress so much of our curiosity. Like, I remember, like, I remember the feeling of, I like this girl. Mm. Didn't really know how to explain it. Didn't really know what it was. But I just remember the very first time you would try to go talk to the girl in the class more than any other girl, you know, or you would try to get her attention more. And you don't even know what it is. I think it's beautiful for us as men to come into recognition that the society creates shame, you know, especially because you're in a leadership position now. 
And so you have created that conversation and we're doing it here, creating that conversation for other people to explore their shame, you know, and to recognize it and to recognize you don't have to hold it. Like yeah. You don't have to hold it. Let's jump off shame and the emotions for a second. Can, can we talk football for a second? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what position was your favorite position of all that you played? I love playing safety. I was a defensive back, a safety in college at West Point, And it was the position, man. That's where all the action happened. I could see the whole field. There's enough space in between me and other people to, uh, to shift and pivot and make moves. And I just loved the luxury of just having that space. And, and a lot of it was, yeah, like you, I loved having like, here's the play, here's my responsibility in the play. But that extra space gave me the, the space that's needed for me to intuitively play. Like, here's my responsibility, but I also know this is what's happening. Um, and it was things that, you know, just couldn't be taught on film. It's just a deep knowing. And so that I love playing safety for those reasons. Give us, uh, we, we talked about people not knowing a first down. What is a first down? Explain <laughs> that to us. So in, in American football, I have to be clear on that. Uh, American football, um, you have essentially 10 yards to go before you get a new set of downs. You have four downs, uh, first, second, third, and fourth downs, and you have to get at least 10 yards to reset those downs so that you can continue to drive the ball down the field. Correct. And the offensive team gets four um, yeah. downs. Yeah. And then the defensive team is trying to stop the offense from yeah. getting a first down. If yeah. you can prevent them from doing so, then your offense gets the ball. Yeah. And essentially the game wins. You you win by having more points than the other team. Mm -hmm. So let's give you a situation. I want to know you're the defensive coordinator. Uh, oh, you're probably my you're probably my only guest that I'll be able to do this with. So I have <laughs> to do it with you. Your defensive coordinator, uh we're going into um uh, two minute drill, fourth quarter. 27-27 tie game. All right. We're, balls on the 20-yard line. Okay. You're calling the play. Balls on the 20-yard line. We're right in the red zone. They're, 20. they're in the red zone. We're in the red zone. We're in the red zone. Okay. We come out. Just, just to tell you what type of team you're playing. We usually run single back. <laughs> we like a we like a lot of uh, you know, tight end, slot receiver type formations. So we come out. We got a single back. We got trips right. Balls on the left hash. What are you calling it? What God type of defense dang, are you calling? Bro, trips right. I'm trying to see this from the other side. You got trips right. Balls on the left hash. So you for ball. you, as a safety, looking at the formation, it would actually be trips left for you. Yeah. Oh, so trips on the left side. Yep. So you have your trips to the field. All right. So I have, obviously, a nickel defense in because I want another outside lower third player. Um, depending on the slot backs, I would try to double team. Uh, with that extra defensive back in, your most explosive uh, slot back. I would just shuffle team them, and then I would man up on the outsides. Um, yeah, and then I would definitely run sort of some sort of stunt game on the front line, uh, depending on who was exposed the most that week or that game, who was weak or tired, to run some sort of stunt game up front to get quick pressure on that quarterback to make a quick decision into uh, double coverage. Mm, okay. And you're, you'd be the safety. So what would you be reading as a safety? What would um, be your reads? First things first, uh, what'd you say down and what was it down in distance? 
we're, we're first and 20, first and uh, red zone. Oh, first and red zone, first and 10 on the 20. Um, I would first be looking at probably that offensive guard that would immediately tell me based on his stance or the pressure on his, his hand. In a lot of ways, if he drives off the ball, if he stands up, are we looking at a, a quick run or are we looking at a pass or any sort of bootleg? Um, See, and that that is why I love football, because people don't if you never played the game, you don't recognize that there is these little things that are happening. So basically, as a safety, you'll come up and you're looking at the offensive line, his hand, the amount of pressure that's on his hand, because if he's leaning forward, that's indicating that he's most likely going to shoot out, which is telling us it's going to be a run. Mm -hmm. So it's a cue. Right. But if he's kind of leaning back or he has his hands up, he's up because he doesn't want to get beat by the defensive player. So now you're reading like, mm, this is going to be a pass. Yeah, it can yeah, right? be a draw in a lot of ways. Um, but also, like if they're in this tendency or this formation, we have watched so much film up until this point that I mm-hmm. know tendencies. I know when this receiver is on trips, maybe his trips open, trips closed, whatever it might be. I know that given the down, the distance, the red zone, the the play. I'm also in the middle of a game with 80,000 people cheering, going through all of these like moments of watching film and remembering, oh, this formation, this time, this, these players, 67% going to be it's a quick out and up, right? Like you get so familiar. It's repetitions, that's repetitions. Mm-hmm. And there's so much time in the film room for that reason because teams have strategies and you have to like, live in the in-between though because you can't fully commit to that happening right right and so i have to live in this in-between of just like oh 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 now go okay and so yeah man i haven't done done this for a second (laughs) i know you've been out the game one of the best things about football is you have to do so much preparation for what has happened right Mm -hmm. what you've seen but then you also have to be totally flexible to react and to respond in the moment to to literally what you're seeing in the moment yeah and that let that life lesson is one of my favorite life lessons because let's just look at our real life like you have to prepare but just because you prepare that doesn't mean it's about to be what you think it's about to be you know and you have to adjust you have to be flexible what is one of your one of your lessons from football that you learned that you bring over into your life one of the lessons that I learned that I bring over in my life I'm, I'm thinking of the first thing that comes to mind, and it's not really a lesson, but kind of a theme is at West Point, when you run onto our football field at West Point, um, there's a there's a quote that says basically, on the fields of strife are sown the seeds that upon other fields will bear the fruits of glory on the fields of strife are sown the seeds that upon other days on other fields will bear the fruits of glory. And what that really is, is like the intrinsic qualities that are cultivated inside or on a football field are the same intrinsic qualities that are going to help you uh, carry on in life, right? The grit, the resilience, the teamwork. Um, those are the qualities that I had taken with me, uh, the willfulness, the work ethic, the willpower. Um, those are the qualities that work for me and also against me um, on mm. my healing journey. And so I think that's like the first thing that comes to my mind. There was this reality to, and maybe I didn't learn, in the, in the NFL, everybody has a job. You have a specific 
job. You do that job and the whole defense is contingent on you doing your job. And what it really comes down to is the entire, when you do your job and everybody does their job, it really opens up a one-on-one for one player to make a play, right? That's how these defenses are schemed out. And so I think there is such an importance when it comes to in life, show up and do you. <laughs> Quit worrying about what that person is doing or that person is doing. Quit worrying if, um, you know, what's not happening. Do you, do your job. And that's you showing up in the way that you're supposed to show up for your life. And there is the common thread that like we are all in this together. We are all in this together, just like we were on the field and just like we are in life. I think it's beautiful when you break it down that way because we, we overwhelm ourselves with what life is, mm. but that's because we're focusing on responsibilities that don't belong to us. Come on. Like, do your job. Like, come on. Like, you're not the whole defense. You're one woman. You're one man. Come on. Just do your job. That's it. Take us to West Point. What is that? What is it? What was it like? Tell us about it. West Point's the United States Military Academy, um, and it's in West Point, New York, about an hour outside of the city. And it's a very uh, prestigious, you know, one of the top military schools, arguably, in the world. And you have to meet a lot of criteria to even get looked at getting um, invited to the academy. Like, you have to have a a congressman's... um, letter of support. <laughs> so like you have to be like actually um invited to achieve or to attend the academy. And then once you get to the academy, it's a four-year service academy that is very rigorous academically, emotionally, physically. Um the academic load is off the charts and they do everything they can basically at West Point to tear you down so that you can one day, you know, be rebuilt into America's leaders. And for instance, your entire freshman year at West Point, you can't walk without your hands, with your hands uncupped. So your entire first year at West Point, your hands have to be in a fist, except for in the classroom. Bro, the amount of discipline that you don't expect, but would take for you to walk an entire year with your hands in a fist cupped is just is just remarkable on top of that um you know you have to memorize an entire knowledge book your freshman year and at any point an upperclassman can put you on the wall and ask you to repeat this piece of knowledge this piece of knowledge or this piece of knowledge and if you don't there's demerits it's not a normal school if i am tardy for class or if i miss a class that's automatically five to ten hours five to ten hours means how west point punishes you as you take away your time because you don't have enough time as it is to succeed there And so how they punish you is you get five to 10 hours, say you have five hours. I got to show up on a Saturday morning, rain, snow, sleet, doesn't matter what. And I got to be in a full dress uniform to a T that's got to pass inspection because I don't pass inspection. That's basically you're done for the day and you get another five hours. And then after I pass inspection of sitting out there for an hour, you walk in a square to a cadence for five hours. And that's your punishment. (laughs) And let's just say, brother, I walked well over a hundred hours my time at West Point. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and that so you are brutal. You are a Division One college athlete. There, um, for people who are playing sports, you're a Division One college athlete, but yet you are you're trying to play with Notre Dame when 
you still have to walk five hours on a, a Saturday in off season, or you have, you know, six hours of homework, or you can't my, I, every day for four years, my lunch was less than two minutes long every day for four years, right? I'm still training myself to eat slow. So West Point is just a very rigorous leadership academic school. And when you graduate West Point, it's, you have a minimum of a five-year military commitment in the United States Army. You're commissioned as an officer in the United States Army, and you have a minimum of five-year obligation in the Army. But your, your story was a little different because you, yeah. you had the NFL. T- tell us a little bit about that. So my sophomore year, I was the number six strong safety in Division One college football. And I started to get a lot of press. And West Point started to get a lot of press. And colleges and coaches, or not colleges, but coaches from the NFL and agents started coming around and watching me practice like all agents and coaches would do. And there just started this kind of chatter, this buzz around, hey, if Caleb Campbell is good enough to get drafted, what's the play. Can he go play? Can he not play? Like what's going on? And so my sophomore year, the, uh, the United States army and West point and the department of defense created this new policy called the alternative service obligation policy. And that essentially said, if I was good enough to go play in the NFL, I could graduate, get commissioned and serve, uh, in a different capacity, um, and also play in the NFL simultaneously. So would, my serving would just look different than my classmates. And so my senior year, this, this got put into motion my sophomore year. I end up having a great, you know, senior year and I'm on the draft board and I get to go to the NFL draft and radio city music hall. And, you know, I'm sitting out there with, you know, Trey Wingo and Rachel Nichols at the time and Mel Kuyper jr. And we're, you know, talking football and then on national television, I get selected, you know, my entire life, I worked for this moment and I got selected. Um, and then the day of, I graduate West Point, I get commissioned as an officer and the day of my first NFL contract signing, I get a phone call notifying me that, Basically, the Department of Defense revised that policy. They created my sophomore year, and it no longer exists. And I have to report immediately back to West Point so I can be assigned my first duty station. Um, so West or Detroit missed out on a draft pick, and I had to, before signing anything, go back to West Point immediately and start serving in the military. And then they rewrote the policy, and they say if you can, three years later. If you're still good enough to get a contract, you can apply for an early release. So I went back to the military for three years. And then in between those three years, surprisingly enough, there is a policy that allows you to pursue the Olympics and serve simultaneously. That's allowed. And I had a chance to bobsled with the United States bobsledding team, um, which helped me a lot, stay in shape, all those good things. So I did that for a season and a half. And then three years after doing all my military stuff, I applied for an early release and I got back into the NFL. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> how the hell did you get on the bobsled team? You can't just throw that in there. <laughs> like, how does one go from the army to drafted by the Detroit Lions to back to the army to, Oh, by the way, I'm just going to bobsled. How yeah, did that crazy, man. I used to tell, I told my wife, I was like, before you came along, I'm telling you what the greatest pickup line in the world, which is saying I'm a bobsled. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was, whenever they told me that I could not play, um, on the day of my contract signing and also the day that training camp was scheduled to start my first training camp with the Detroit lions. Uh, this story unfolded nationally. ESPN picked it up. Uh, Fox news, CNN, all major news stations were talking about this. So like I was on ESPN and I'm like the featured story and my younger brother 
who was born with a rare birth deficiency and he had his leg amputated when he was three or four at this time he is a paralympian and he's training actually to become an olympian um training to make the olympic games and he was sitting in san diego in chula vista at the old olympic training center it's no longer there but at that training center that was for uh the olympic training center in chula vista and he's watching espn unfold and there's a guy sitting next to him and says, well, damn, I wish we can get a hold of this guy because he can come bobsled for us. And it was the head coach for the bobsledding team. Had no idea he was sitting next to my brother. My brother honestly looked over at him and says, I got his number. Do you want his number? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm driving from Detroit back to West Point. And I have done interviews after interviews after interviews. And I told my agent at that time, I was like, no more interviews. I'm tired. I'm just completely drained. And can I just remind you at this time, I am the least self-aware person you've ever met. <laughs> like the least mm-hmm. self-aware person. And I'm tired. And I just keep getting this phone call and a phone call and a phone call. I'm like, what the hell? And my brother goes, answer your damn phone. I said, okay. So I answered and it happened to be the bobsledding coach. And so we kind of created a plan that once I got back to West Point, got everything situated, all my paperwork, I would drive up to Lake Placid, New York, and try out for the bobsledding team. Wow. Bobsled. <laughs> so you competed in the Olympics bobsledding? No, I did not. No, I want to make that clear. Okay. So that year I slid um, with USA Team 3 off and on. Um, and then when the Olympics went out there, I went out there to watch, like to, to slide with the trials, but I did not actually compete in the Olympics. Okay. Those people, like I honor those athletes so much. I would never do anything to take away from them. They are, they didn't really, I don't think they really accepted me. Um, it's like they work so hard and they are easily right. some of the most hardworking athletes I've ever met in my life. And then here comes this punk, you know, NFL football player that suddenly now brings all the attention in the cameras. Like who, who is this guy? And so it was a hard season, um, a a really hard season for me, but yeah, I didn't actually slide in the Olympics. Still incredible. Thanks. Just, (laughs) just to have that as a footnote on the already incredible story about what you were experiencing from the college to NFL transition. What are you most excited about right now? Present day. When's this podcast released? Do you know? Uh, this upcoming Sunday. Okay, never mind. Um, what am I most excited about right now, present day? Man, I think right now I am so excited um, just about where I, I'm honestly where I'm at in life. I feel like I've been working tirelessly since leaving the NFL to try to find my place in this world. Like, what's my voice? What's my thing? Where do I belong? What, what kind of transformation do I want to help create in the hearts and the minds of people? Like, what is it? I have never felt more clear, more present and more grounded in my life. Like I feel right now, maybe for the arguably the first time in my life, I feel like I'm an active participant in my life. Like I am, I have created space to invite in the things that are for me. And it feels damn good to start learning what it looks like to live life from a place of rest. And that's where I'm at. I know that you have uh, rest on your uh, Instagram story. Tell me more about rest. That's, That's something that's big for you right now. 
Yeah, I think for me, I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, you know, on June 3rd, 2019, it says it's finally enough. You know, I think I've been chasing this deep ache in my heart that says like, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more available. And it served me well. Like, I think that ache to find the more is the motivation to get to the NFL. And it was also my motivation to show up and heal as I left the NFL. But I started to realize that no matter how far I went in life in terms of achievement, it was never enough. And I also started to realize that no far, how far I went in terms of my healing, it was still not enough. It was like my turn, my, I went from one performance to the other. I turned my performance from the NFL, I turned my performance to my healing journey. Like, let me now perform my way into healing, do more, do more, do more. And I got to this point when I was living out in LA that like, I'm missing something. Like there's still this deep ache in me that I'm trying to satisfy and it's never enough. And so for a long time, I, I did a lot of work on befriending that ache, becoming very acquainted with that ache and recognizing that maybe that ache isn't supposed to leave. Maybe that ache is here for me. Um, and I started to realize that in that season, I had never found the courage to accept my life as it was, to fully, radically accept my life here and now. And I can tell you why, and it's because of shame, right? Why would I ever want to accept my life when shame is a driving force behind my life and shame is whispering me every day that it's not enough, really meaning you're not enough. To accept my life is to accept that I'm not enough, and that's damn scary. And so let me just keep doing more healing or more performing or more achievements to try to override this shame, but it's not enough. And then I got to the season where I had to learn what, it, what does it look like to radically accept my life here and now. And I talk about this a lot and people like say, and they think if I radically accept my present life, my life will never change. And I say, on the contrary, when you learn how to radically accept your present life, the inner work that it requires for you to accept your life inevitably will help you remove the fear of your life never changing. And when you remove the fear of your life never changing, you expand your life. How, how's your relationship with that ache now? I think right now, for the first time in my life, that ache has become one with me. I don't feel the ache like I once did. And the difference between how I was living now and how I'm living now, or how I was living then and how I'm living now, is I'm, I'm, I'm more present than I've ever been. Like I'm learning what it looks like to go from pushing the river of your life forward with everything you've got to realizing that the river is already flowing. I just got to learn how to rest in it. And that looks like by living a more present life, which the whole healing journey, the whole soul journey that we go on is to get back. It's, it's what the, all the great mystics and the gurus say, like everything you've been looking for this entire time has been within you. <laughs> the and whole time. It me off so much, but I'm like, holy shit, I, for, I, I get it now. <laughs> I really get it. The ground that I have been so, with so much effort and so much striving and so much hustling, the ground that I've been trying to attain, holy shit, is the ground I've been standing on this entire time. And it only happened when I realized that I have to learn how to live in the present. Walk me through a typical day in your life. Yeah. I'm an early riser, uh, 5.30 to 5.50. Um, I get up. I have hot lemon water. 
um, any supplements I might be taking. I'll just kind of take my supplements. And then I, I try to just sit around uh, for a second until my body kind of wakes up a little bit. And then I'll immediately either go into a 10 to 15 minute stillness meditation of just really learning how to uh, just focus on my breath. And it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a meditation of remembering like everything, every time my thoughts drift off, Oh, I catch myself. And now I come back to the present drift, catch myself back to the present. So it's just like a, a, a workout, right? Just practicing being present. I do that for about 10 to 15 minutes and then I'll do a quick anywhere from five to 10 minute breathing. I lay on the ground and I breathe. Um, and then I do an immediate 90 second to 120 second cold shower. Um, it's cold as I can get it. Can't wait to get a cold tub, uh, but as cold as I can get it. And then after my cold shower, I'm feeling like I could climb Mount Everest. Um, and then I usually go upstairs and I will do my morning journaling, uh, any sort of writing project that I'm working on. Uh, I'll do that. And then I, after that, um, I'll hit the gym. And then after I'm done with the gym, sometimes it's nine, nine thirty AM. And then I just hit my to-do list for the day. What is your career now? So I'm a full-time speaker. Uh, for the last three years, I have been speaking full-time. Um, and I'm just now kind of making a transition into corporate keynotes. But I have been speaking full-time in high-achieving schools to high-achieving students. Um, right now, high-achieving students are named an at-risk group because they fly under the radar. Um, right now, they are excelling by every metric and standard of success. And they are, like you said earlier, being applauded for that. And so they don't want to jeopardize that by talking about the struggles that they're having, right? And life is one big competition for them. So I, I, I say that I help young achievers relentlessly pursue their goals in life by not losing themselves in the process, by helping them basically integrate their mental fortitude and their standard of excellence with the power of vulnerability and emotional skills, they unlock their lives from an early age. Maybe just maybe it's like been a passion of mine. What does it look like to raise up a generation of kids that don't have to spend their entire adult life healing from their childhood trauma? You are as an adult, what you needed as a kid. Come on. Have you, have you recognized that? Yeah. I'm a, I tell people this, like, I'm not a speaker. I'm a permission slip because that's what I needed when I was younger. It's a question that I ask all of my students. What's one thing that you wish your parents or the adults in your life would have told you more, or you wish that they are telling you more. And so many of them are just longing to be seen. They're longing to have the permission to not be okay. And that's what I just hope for. That's what I long for. I was longing for somebody to tell me that I'm doing a good job because my entire life was, you should do this better. You should do this better. You should do this better because they cared about me and they wanted to see me succeed, but there was no space for me to come undone. And so I think I needed the permission to not be okay. And that's what I'm trying to do with these students. If a listener on the Free Your Energy podcast wanted to come into your world, where do, what do they do? Where do they find you? What are some of the things you're working on and, and creating and sharing? Yeah. So right now I I've taken this last year off of basically Instagram as I have been intentionally about creating the space in my heart and my life to grieve unmet expectations. I realized that 
that has been I, I see it in the in in general uh we have inside of the western world inside of our culture as you alluded to we have the space to grieve the loss of a loved one it's called a funeral how many of us are taking the time to grieve the promotion that we didn't get the relationship that didn't work out right before we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we try again because that's what's rewarded oh wow you're so strong to move on that fast right? But no, hold on. Are you creating the space in your heart and your life to grieve those unmet expectations? Because creating that space is directly correlated to how much room you have available emotionally to invite in the things that you actually want in your life. This is freeing your energy, right? And so uh, I've been intentional on not being on social for that reason, I'm back on social. So you can find me on Instagram, Caleb underscore Campbell. Um, I'm also redoing my website uh, right now. It's just calebcampbell.me. And I'm getting excited about launching a new course called Soulfully Shifting. It's for people who feel like they have taken their lives as far as they have taken it. And now moving forward, it doesn't look like doing more, but learning how to resist less. And so it's a course, and this is the liminal space, right? The life that I once had no longer fits me. Maybe there is a loss of a job, a loss of a promotion, maybe a loss of a loved one or a reputation or a relationship. And that life is over, but the new life has not yet emerged. This in-between space, this tension, it's the contraction that comes before the expansion. How we navigate that space determines so much. And that's really the course. It's soulfully shifting. How, how to expand our lives consciously because when we don't do it consciously we lose ourselves in the process and so that's the big project that i'm working on getting ready to launch when when can we expect that to be available uh i should have that up um by the end of the week um at least the um like email subscribe to let you know when it does launch so i'll have that landing page up for anybody that is curious on that uh to jump in and then um the course i'm thinking of doing you know six to eight weeks live and then turning it into a video course Mm, that'd be great that'd be great does that that mean you'll come on as a guest speaker bro (laughs) absolutely (laughs) absolutely i'd love to whatever you need thanks man Let's do this. You sit down at a table and you're about to order dinner. What are you ordering? What kind of table am I at? It's a big ass table. <laughs> <laughs> all your friends, all the people you like. Oh man, give me a a full-bodied cab, preferably because I have reduced alcohol in my life by 95%. So I can really when I drink a glass of wine, it's a nice bottle. So Give me a full body cab, maybe even something from the Napa region, Camus, preferably. Anybody out there listening, you know? <laughs> um, give me a full body cab. And then, um, man, I love a good piece of meat. I, I, I love meat. Uh, so give from me from Texas. I am from Texas. So we man. assume we assume I love that. <laughs> steak. I love some sautéed spinach and grilled asparagus. Um, some uh, fried uh, uh, potatoes. Yeah, I'm a meat and kind of potatoes guy. Uh, very simple, actually. My wife is a former. She's a, she used to be a celebrity chef out in LA, and she's like, "You sure you don't want me to help you expand your palate?" <laughs> and I have. I try new things, but I find myself always coming back to my first love.
if you started a new company tomorrow, what company would you start? What would it do? Who would it serve? If I started a new company tomorrow, what company would I? Well, I think uh, anything that can that can create the space, a safe, inclusive environment for people to navigate their journey. I think it's Henry Swift Deer. He said something, I think it's his name. He said something that it was a quote that caught my attention. He said, everybody has a survival dance in life and everybody has a sacred dance. Everybody experiences their survival. Not everybody experiences their sacred. The journey from the survival to the sacred, right? That's that liminal space that I alluded to. So how do we create systems that are safe and inclusive um, so people can it's not that I do your journey for you, but people can better understand the journey that is ahead of them. It's a guide. It's a roadmap. Oh, this is what's going on. I have in my own journey set across countless people and strangers that had given me a conversation, had a conversation with me most unexpectedly, and I suddenly realized the next step on my journey. Oh, that's where I'm at. Right, that aha moment. I would love just to create that safe, inclusive environment to help empower people to navigate that journey of liminal space from their survival to their sacred dance. Because I think that the world would be a better place if we were all having a sacred dance with life. All right, we're going to do a lightning round. You ready? Yeah, man. Three questions, and then we're going to close it out. Cool. What's one place that you've lived? that you loved living there? Los Angeles. What's one thing you've never done that you want to do? Swimming with sharks. Your biggest fear? Living in an insignificant life. Mm. Damn. That's me. That's my dance, man. That's my dance. Coming back to the present. (laughs) Los Angeles, sharks. And living an insignificant life. Do you feel like it's significant? Yeah. The more that I can wake up and realize that I'm living from a place of significance, the more I have nothing left to prove and it becomes significant. And that's just waking up and doing my best to live from this place of present, man. Present really is what unlocks our life. Why did you leave Los Angeles? It was time to go. Um, And that's like my, my trip here to Nashville, I wasn't ready to leave because all of the ways that I thought my life was supposed to change in Los Angeles didn't. Where I thought I would be in life as a result of being in Los Angeles, I wasn't there. And I had to create the space in my heart to let that go. And my wife and I both knew in our hearts that Nashville was the next city for us. Um, And so despite it, me resisting it for several months, which inevitably created a lot of uh, emotional chaos in my life. Um, we made the move. And then my whole, you know, first few months in Los Angeles or in Nashville was grieving those on my expectations in all the ways that I thought my life should have changed, but never did. And learning how to be more present and radically accepting my life here and now. Did you have a network in Nashville already and friends there? Or We had a couple like, of what, friends, but not big. Uh, we're very much still, still finding our community here. Uh, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, it feels like backtracking. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. The people here are just phenomenal, outstanding people. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is very much church-centric, where the first question that a lot of people ask you is, what church do you go to? I'm like, how's your heart? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it, it feels a little, uh, a little 
suffocating in that sense, but we have some great, great friends here and we're meeting more incredible people by the day. And man, yeah, I'm just excited. So it's kind of, kind of similar to Texas in a way. Yes. Kind of reminds you of, of being in Texas. What's, what's one thing that you like about uh, Nashville? I went out there last year and I was there for like two days. What, what do you like about it? It's slow. I like that. I really do like that it's slow. There is the, uh, there's a different energy here that I think, like, I, I'm, I'm the first to tell you that if L.A., connects with you if you feel called to be with la and you in that and there is a synergy between your energy and the la energy of just go there is no better place i feel like to be in the world like go and i say that for any place but nashville for where my life is and where i feel like it's going when i realized that it wasn't so much about the hustle but it was more about avoiding stillness in my life i needed a geographical location with that same energy of slowness that could help facilitate the stillness that need to happen in my life. And so the slowness is just, it's good. It's like people take their time. They're kind. It's nice. There isn't like this, there's still people doing incredible things and doing great work, but it's not, God doesn't have that angst energy attached to it. Help me create a title for this podcast. When you visualize someone saying, Hey, I'm going to go listen to that episode. They're going to check out Caleb Campbell. He's chatting with Sylvester McNutt the third. What is the title of that podcast? Hmm. Maybe how to expand your life consciously. There it is. I like it. Yeah. We're all looking to step into the more of our lives and there's more available. And I don't mean that as in like a uh, more, more money, bigger house, nicer car. That's all good and great, but there is more available in terms of more love, more depth, more knowledge, more intimacy, more connection, right? And that's the more that we are, we are craving as human beings. And so when we can expand our lives consciously, we are becoming more emotionally aware, present, and connected people. And when we become more emotionally aware, present, and connected, we unlock our lives.